Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world, whatever time of day it is, wherever the sun is on his axis. I'm glad you could be with us. Um, so uh, two things before we get going. Number one, um, we were looking at uh, some of the stats online about like who's listening. And we know there are apparently over a 90-day period, some 19,000 people are listening to this message online. Um, and so first off, we're, we're glad you're listening. That's awesome. Um, and so I also want to extend to you, like a pastor should, um, if you want to support us at all, uh, we, we are here. We are, at, at, at this moment in time, we are actively helping people through this crisis, and it's expensive. We're helping pay some rents. We're paying some mortgages. We're helping people with groceries. We are paying for, um, for counseling um, to help get people through this, local people, people in our congregation, um, whoever needs it. And so uh, we could use your support. So uh, think about it. And if our work here has blessed you in some way, um, hit up watermarktampa.com and, 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 uh, and consider helping us out. Um, also today, again, like we have been announcing every week, just in case, for those of you who have been skipping the worship and the, um, the, uh, the announcements, um, we do have an after party every week uh, on Zoom. So you just, it's, it's at 11.45. I know we, we've been sort of launching a little bit early. Um, probably not gonna be doing that because it's a little awkward when like there's two of us in there and we're waiting for everyone else to show up. So I'm probably gonna launch it exactly 11.45. Um, it's going to go from 11.45 to 12.30. And there's just a few questions that we ask and, and that sort of uh, drive some conversation so we can connect with everybody and see how everybody's doing. Um, so our passage today is, as he read, Acts 12, 1 through 11. Um, this is an interesting text. Uh, there is something that, that Luke is doing here that I think is, uh, is fascinating and most modern readers don't, don't see it because they're not Jewish um, and they're not reading it through first century eyes. But I'm going to help you this morning sort of see that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause here. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for everything that you were doing um, outside these walls uh, while we cannot gather together. I lift up every, every one of... Uh, the amazing members of this community. I ask that you would be with them right now, that at this very moment when they're listening to this, that they would be filled with joy and, uh, and, and patience and understanding and wisdom and knowledge, that uh, um, you would uh, let them know that, that you are working through this, that you are pulling them through, that on the other side of this will be um, more knowledge of ourselves, more knowledge of you, more knowledge of our, our world around us, so that we are better equipped to, to deal with the difficult things that are happening in our world. I pray that through all of this, you would expose uh, the darkness, shine the light upon it, allow us to stick our hands uh, into that darkness and, uh, and, and, and lift people out of it who need it. Um, and let us shine brightly in the midst of all of it. Let us be your people, um, bravely and steadily, without fear, walking towards the future you have. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so this passage, as it is presented by Luke, it does something very peculiar. There's a link made in this passage. Uh, perhaps you saw it, perhaps you didn't. There's a link in this passage made between uh, the imprisonment and escape of Peter and the Passover festival. Now, um, we, we must remember, ancient writings weren't like modern writings. Um, they didn't have unlimited space. They had very very, very limited space. We know that 
um, Luke's writings, the, the two-volume series of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, they're both the same length, and they both are, are the length of a full scroll. Um, they took up the entire thing. It was probably really hard to plan this out, but it's well planned out. Um, and so there's not... There's all kinds of stuff that could have been added that wasn't. And there's all kinds of stuff that you look at and you're like, why is that in there? That maybe you feel like is unnecessary, but it's not. When you read an ancient text like this, everything that is placed in there, it's like a work of art. Everything that is placed in there has a purpose and a meaning and has something to be pulled out of it. Um, it, is, it is important to look twice, to look three times, to look four times, to look deeper and deeper and deeper. So um, there is a reason when you read through the text... In Acts 12, 1 through 4, I'm only going to do 1 through 4 here. Um, let me read this. I'm going to show this to you. It says, it was, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that, that this met with the approval of, uh, among the Jews, was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Uh, this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So he puts this in there. And they would keep going. After arresting him and putting him in prison, handing him over to the guards, uh, by, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. <clears throat> so, he specifically twice mentions the Passover celebration. You have, the, you have the unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then you have this, this is going to be done before the Passover. Now, um, in order to stand, understand what is happening here and why Luke would include a random detail like this. We, we have to understand what the Passover festival was and what it meant for the original reader of this text. And then we can, with that knowledge, sort of look closer at, at what he is probably doing here. So the Passover in the Jewish festival celebrates the, the, the story of how God's people were freed from, uh, from slavery in ancient Egypt, you can read about this in, uh, in the second book of the Bible. It's called Exodus. And when you read it, you're going to see a people, enslavement, in bondage for generation upon generation. And every day they wake up, they make bricks, they do the same thing. Uh, and they raise their family to make bricks. And then they raise their family to make bricks. And then they raise their family to make bricks. And it doesn't end. And it's this never-ending existence of enslavement and slave labor, constantly no days off, no chance to practice their religion the way they should. And then there comes a time when, if you've seen the, you know, the old, um, <clears throat> the old movies of, 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 of Moses, I forget uh, who played Moses in the ancient movie. doesn't matter. Maybe Mickey knows. Who played Moses in the, in the old Ten Commandments movie? Oh, okay, whatever. Um, so if you've seen this, then you understand like how this happened. Moses enters in, there's this battle, um, all these things are happening, and the people are eventually set free. But the way they are set free, the night before they are set free, they go through this thing that they celebrated later with the Passover where um, they're sort of huddled in their houses and they're praying and they put blood on the doorposts of their house and they are, is that for me? What you got? All right, water. Are we doing the stool thing again? Thank you. I'm struggling. Struggling. All right. Awesome. Ooh, so good. Okay. Oh, yeah. See, it's already coming back. All right. So, um, the Exodus story is this defining moment of God's people where God leads them out miraculously. They, they, walk, they walk up to the Red Sea and it parts and they walk through the Red Sea. And all of this happens after sort of this night where they're huddled in their houses, sort of in, in quarantine, right? And the angel is coming in and all the firstborn of the land are dying. And that's like the last straw in a long line of, of plagues. 
and the people are set free. Now, this story of how the people were set free is the definitive story of the people of Israel. When they gathered together every single festival and every, every night as they prayed, um, they, they would remind each other of the story of God leading them out of Israel. Every year they would have this fast Passover festival to celebrate it. Uh, whenever God speaks to them, he introduces himself as, hey, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And every time that anything big happens, they sing praises about the God who let, led them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. So this Exodus story is their defining story, okay? Um, um, Oh, I forgot to put my illustrations up. We have the ancient sort of Egyptian pictures of the slaves and stuff. Now, the person who was keeping them in bondage is, is, um, is Pharaoh. Now, uh, let me see where we're going here. Um, okay, so after they are led out of bondage and out of slavery, they had been led by, they had been held by Pharaoh and they had been held by this human king. And after they're free, God meets them in the wilderness and God makes this pact with them and that never again, if they, if they committed to this God, never again would they ever be ruled um, by anyone but their own king, God himself. Now, it was very unusual in the ancient world to talk about being ruled over by God himself. Uh, it's, a, it's really nobody else did this except for the Israelites. Everyone else had these human kings. So it's unusual to talk about being ruled over by anybody but God in the ancient world. Um, but it was not unusual in those days to be ruled over by a king who claimed to be God. And that's what Pharaoh was. Pharaoh, the name Pharaoh is Pharaoh. It's Ra was the sun god. So Pharaoh is the incarnation of the sun god. And every morning the sun god, every time the sun comes up in the air, they, they, they believe it's sort of like he is the incarnation. Their Pharaoh is the incarnation of this god in this guy who arises and does battle and conquers every single day. And as long as the sun rises, Pharaoh is still in charge. And, and this god man, Pharaoh, is leading them and ruling over them. And every night they go to sleep and every day he arises again. And it's not just that. He's also... He's also they, they understood that like it took sunlight to raise crops and to keep things alive and to keep, the, to keep them warm. And they understand all of this and they give all the honor and glory to Pharaoh in their world. Um, and so this is how they're sort of viewing him as he is God in the flesh. So let's pause there. Let's come back to our story in Acts chapter 12. Um, what we have in today's passage in Acts chapter 12 is this story of Peter. He's arrested on Passover, on, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this all happens before Passover, and he is going to be executed. They've already executed the brother of Jesus, and now Peter is in this prison. And as we come to today's passage, this is what we see, this Passover festival. And, and part, of, um, part of what Luke is doing is he is reframing sort of the, the Passover story to give the church their own Exodus Passover story. And as I read, this is going to come alive and you're going to see this. The reason he calls out the Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is because he wants his audience to understand and connect these two events together because what is about to happen is very much the same in their minds um, and carries sort of the same weight as what happened to them in Egypt. Not, it wasn't as big of a thing. It's not all God's people being set free, but the symbolism and the spiritual meaning behind it all, the theological meaning behind it is all the same and it's all there. So, so um, they were held under Pharaoh, God in the flesh, right? Now, in, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 12, they are being ruled over by King Herod Agrippa. Um, now, two things are going on here. They, 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 there were a lot of um, Romans 
who looked to the, the emperors, to the kings of Rome, as divine. They prayed to them, they offered incense to them. They also believed that they held some sort of divine status in the world. Not only that, um, the people that were ruling over sort of the church and the, the Jewish people in that day and persecuting the church now is not just Herod, it's a partnership between Herod and the temple leaders. Now, what was the role of the temple leaders in the ancient world? The role of the temple leaders, they are representatives of God. They are supposed to be, and they know this, they know that they are the Imago Dei in this world. They are the image of God in this world. In the same way that you would look at Pharaoh in ancient Egypt and you would sort of understand what Ra was like, right? When you look at the Israelites, they were... The story that they tell is that they were um, created sort of to be the image of God in this place. So when you look at them, you understand, okay, if I watch these people, I will understand what their God is like. And so we have several images so far of these leaders. Pharaoh, first off, he's divine and he's human, right? And then you have, but not really, that's just how they viewed him. And then you have Herod, and Herod is, is looked at by some as divine. And also you have the temple leaders who understand their role is to be the image of the divine in this place. So we already have sort of the setting, right? So the temple leaders are representatives of God in that place. Now, the gospel oftentimes portrays the gospels of Matthew, the gospels of, 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 of Matthew, Mark, Luke, all four of them d describe God's people in the first century under the temple leadership as being a people in bondage not only to the temple leadership, but also to the Roman Empire. They understand their bondage to the Roman Empire, but Jesus points out their bondage to the temple leaders. And so Jesus says stuff like this in Matthew 23, 4. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The language that he is using here is the language of the slave boy who by his master has been stacked up with all kinds of stuff and it's incredibly heavy um, and he doesn't care because this is a human tool, right? And he's carrying all this stuff. And Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you workers in the temple. You are loading these people up with so many laws that they can't possibly carry the load that you are laying upon their backs. And... Um, why would, the, the question is, why would Jesus say this? What is he talking about? Now, um, so the thing you should know about the temple leaders is that the temple, leader, the temple leaders in the, in the first century had specific views about what God was doing in the world. The specific views that the temple leaders had and, they, and that they taught the people and that they wanted all the people to understand was that God wants to set up God's kingdom, but God can't set up God's kingdom because God's people are full of sin. And so if we can get the people to obey the law, the Torah, God will show up and establish his kingdom. Now, when this happens, it will be through a Messiah and he will take up a sword. This is how they viewed this. Even John the Baptist viewed Jesus this way. And that's why he's still wondering, why aren't you establishing a kingdom? They're expecting the Messiah to come once the people all live up to the laws. Once the people are, are, are reflecting God through good righteous living, the Messiah will rise up, gather up his army, overthrow the Roman Empire, and establish a new empire that will spread to the ends of the world, ruled by their Davidic king. This is what they believe. But first they need the people to obey. And if you can't get the people to obey, then you can't get the Messiah to come. And so they had an idea. They had to create a fence around the laws. Now, all of this is misplaced. I'll explain the fence in just a second. All of this is misplaced, by the way, before I go any farther. I want you to understand. 
this fat infatuation they had with the law is completely misplaced. Um, the, the promise that God had made with them after leading them out of bondage in Egypt, God had met them in the desert and God had looked at them and said, hey, we'll make a deal. You be my people um, and I will commit to you. We will make a covenant together. And, and if you're faithful to this covenant, I will, be, I will always be faithful to this covenant. Um, and in this covenant, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will be your king, your personal king. No human person between us. I will be your leader. I will be your king. You will be my people. And, and, and we will be a nation that doesn't exist against other nations. We will bless all the nations of the world. This is the kind of nation that we will be. Now, all of this happened before God gave them the law. A lot of Christians are confused about like, how this happened. The law came much later. Um, the Jewish people were not legalistic. I know there's a lot of Christians that say, oh, they were legalistic religion. They weren't. They were what's called a covenant gnomism. They believed they were saved by the covenant God had made. And then after this covenant was made, God took them to Sinai and gave them this Torah, this law. And the point of the law was not, was not to win their salvation to heaven. The point of the law was to be sort of a crutch, sort of a tool, a, uh, a tool to help them accomplish the covenants of God, to be a blessing to the world. And one of the ways you can accomplish this is, is you have to be separate. If you become like everyone else, you can't be a blessing to them because you're just like them. Okay, so um, the problem is the religious leaders has taught the people that if they obey the laws, that is how God's kingdom will be established. So they had already misplaced the laws. Okay, so one of the things that they did to get the people to obey was they build what's called a fence around the laws. Well, so here's how this works. Let's just say you have a law and you want to keep people away from committing, uh, from, from transgressing this law. So let's just pick a law here. Where did I write down? Um, let's say um, the law is thankfulness. God commands you to be a thankful people. Okay, so how do we ensure that people keep this law to be thankful? Well, we're going to invent, the fence around it is going to be, we're going to have all these prayers that you're going to do right before you eat, at the end of your meal. You're going to wake up, you're going to pray a prayer. Before you lie down and go to bed, you're going to pray a prayer. All throughout your day, you're going to stop, and you're going to pray a prayer, and you're going to thank God for specific things, the same things all the time, so that you always stay away from becoming unthankful. And, and if you can keep the fence back far enough from the central thing, nobody's going to transgress it. If the law required generosity, then we're going to lay out strict rules so that people will always be generous. And so around the fence around generosity is going to be, we're going to tithe 10% of our, of our spice rack. We're going we're gonna, to, all these things that we're going to do, all these extra rules that we are going to put in place so that you don't go near breaking the law. And over time, one page of rules had become a thousand pages to explain how to keep that one rule. And this became ridiculous. Now, if you, if you, if you have a hard time understanding this, um, and like, how could they do that? This happens all the time in our modern context, especially in Christian settings. If you want to understand how this really works, all you have to do is go to any real uh, private Christian school website or church website or whatever, camp, Christian camps, and I want you to pull up their dress code, okay? Um, they'll have a verse that will say something to the effect of the biblical command is modesty, and they always single out women. It says, the biblical command is modesty. And then they will say, and so, here's exactly how wide the shoulder straps on your, on your shirt could be. Here's how, um, here's how long the skirt will be. Here's the kind of shoes you can wear. Here's what, and they will dictate all these other things to keep you away from the center thing. This is exactly what the Jewish temple leaders were doing. They were 
stacking up on top of you these laws that you could not ever follow. I went to, um, I went to a very conservative Christian college back in the late 90s that had rules about like, you can hug for three seconds. And I, I keep searching the Bible to find this law and I, I'm having a hard time, but I'm sure it's there because there were PhD theologians there. So I'm sure that law is there for a reason. I'm sure they're not just creating a fence around it like unnecessary religion does. Um, I'll find it, don't you worry. And so this is sort of how this works. And so um, these are the men, again, who are, who are making all these laws, who are sitting on the seat of Moses. And so the people are looking at them and saying, this must be what God is like, all these rules. This must be what God wants. This must be who God is. He's a person who really, really cares about rules and rule keeping and laws and doing everything perfectly and in order. This must be what God really cares about. And the reason they would think this is because they are the Imago Dei, just like Pharaoh was, just like Herod is sort of divine in the eyes of some other people. So Jesus has other words for them. Jesus says this, Matthew 23, 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices and mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, Jesus understands that the reason law exists, the reason they are called out to be God's people is not so that they can obey some laws and be good moral people. The reason they are called out is so they can pra practice justice and mercy and be a blessing to the world around them so that everyone, every other nation in the world would understand who these people are and who their God is because they are a people who are loving and merciful and generous, who care not about putting their own nation and their own people first. They care about putting the, the needs of, of every single individual that they can see. Again, who is my neighbor, right? Um, and so this is what they are called to be. And so Jesus says, look, you have taken what the law was supposed to be and, and, and you've destroyed that and you've replaced it with all these laws, these fences around all these other things. You hypocrites, you care so much about tithing and you don't care about the poor about people being treated unjustly and unfairly and about generosity. And so by Acts 12, these temple leaders are rounding up the leaders of the church and they're killing them. Why are they killing them? Because really a lot of reasons, but some of it wrapped up in this is that the Christians have seen the true Imago Dei. The Christians have seen what God is really like. They met Jesus and Jesus was God incarnate. And so they've been looking to their temple leaders trying to figure out what God is like. And then they see Jesus and now they realize we don't need this temple anymore because we are the temple and everything has now been replaced. They don't need these people claiming to be the image of God anymore because they have Christ, the full, true, perfect image of God. And now that they've seen it, they reject the laws of the, of the temple leaders. They reject their own leaders. They no longer need these kings. They don't need Herod. They don't need a half-Jewish king. They don't need the temple leaders. They have Jesus. They have the spirit of God within them. Jesus is now their king. They no longer need any of this. And once again, they've, they've made God their king, the way God's people were always supposed to. No human king, just God as your king there. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, the crucified and risen Lord. Um, and all you can do with someone who will not respect your authority, all you can do with that person is kill them. Someone who won't listen to your commands, somebody who won't do what you say, somebody who you cannot control. The only option left for the empire is to exercise power. But you see, the Christians aren't afraid of their power because they did it to Jesus. 
and they saw the resurrection of Christ. And so they were no longer afraid of the power of death, of the power of the sword, of the power of the empire. And so they kept going. And so Peter gets arrested and he's thrown in prison and he's there and the people are praying. And so what Luke does is Luke now, now that we're here, now that we have that whole setup, you can begin to see how Luke reframes the story. So Luke is now going to retell the Exodus story as if he is giving the church their own Exodus story, okay? Um, and so here's all the characters. We have them all here. Um, you, have, you, have, you have the people huddled in their houses in, in verse 12, the house of Mary, the mother of John, also, um, also called Mark, where many people are gathered and were praying. So they're already huddled in their houses, reenacting sort of this thing. And then um, uh, the role of Pharaoh in this story is played by the combination of Herod and the Sanhedrin, all sort of images of the divine in their world, just like Pharaoh was. Um, Peter, the part of Israel is played by Peter, who is imprisoned and he's there. Uh, the, 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 the part of Moses is going to be played by this angel of Jesus. There's no other human that plays the role because Jesus replaces Moses. And so this angel of Jesus, the angel of the Lord is there, uh, who walks in and he walks in and Peter is asleep. And it literally says in the text that he like struck Peter on the side. So like he walks in, like gives him a little kick. He's like, hey, Peter, wake up. And then you read this. So it says, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared uh, and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Um, and so I, I want you to put yourself in the mind of the original first century Jewish reader who was reading this. And they've mentioned the Passover and then all of these other things are coming into play. It goes a little farther. Even the character of, they get to this part where um, everyone knows that the biggest part of, of the, of the um, Exodus story is when they come to the Red Sea, right? And it parts and they walk through. Um, by the way, this is a picture of, of what they assume is probably, maybe, who knows where Peter was held. Um, there's literally no way to prove this, but it's in the right place. And so it's, uh, it's old enough and you can kind of get an idea of like, maybe this is where Peter was. There's a little hole you could drop food down and, Drop other prisoners down if you'd like. Um, so we'll go a little farther in chapter 12, verse 10. It says this. They came to the iron gates leading to the city and it opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. So we have the Exodus story here set at the Passover. The people hovering, huddling in their houses, praying. The angel comes just like in the other story, um, the chains fall off. He's set free and he gets to the part, part that is keeping in him. By the way, this is likely, they think, the gate that sort of opened. It would have been an iron gate sort of there and that might actually be original. Who knows? Uh, and it opened up for them. So the whole point of this story is that Luke is retelling the story of Exodus and he's giving the church their own Exodus story. Why? Because the Exodus story for God's people has always been the pinnacle, the center of who they were, of what it meant to be God's people. We are a people who God saves from bondage over and over. This is what God does. And so Luke re sort of retells the story, gives everybody a part to play and gives it to the churches. And by the way, you have another Exodus story. You have a new way of looking at all this. What is the point of this reference? What is Luke doing? What is the message of Luke's audience for the church? Luke wants them to know that they are free, that Jesus is the one who brought them out of bondage and that yes, now they are literally out of bondage and there is no reason to go back. 
Um, this is the exodus of the church, a new people in the world, just like the formation of Israel. When Israel, this was the moment after they came out, like this is when they received their new law. This is when they sort of became a different people in the world. And Jesus is the same God who breaks the chains of the imprisoned and who leads the prisoner of freedom. He's the same God doing this thing again for them, making a new people in the world. Jesus is the same God who directly reigns over his people. There is no other people, um, no other, I'm sorry, there is no other authority over God's people other than Christ. And unlike the corrupted temple leaders who had joined the forces of the empire, which which they lived, um, who were rewarded with power, the Christians would never again enter into the bondage under earthly kings and rulers. God was calling them out of it and letting them know your authority is Jesus. That is who you are here to serve. Jesus and Jesus alone. And so the, the leaders in the church were unlike the leaders in the world. They were Christ-like. Their whole goal was to be as much like Jesus as possible. They knew that they were called, like the temple leaders, to be the Imago Dei. They knew it uh, with one particular difference. The difference between the church leaders and the temple leaders was that the church leaders had seen the true image of God, the true Imago Dei, and so they knew how it was done. And once you've seen the real image of God, once you've seen so, the actual revelation of everything that God ever wants us to know about who God is. You cannot go back to these other leaders. You cannot go back to these other kings again. And that is where, in their minds, like, that is where the authority of the apostles came from. That's why the church looked to Peter and Paul and these other, these other apostles who met Jesus, who knew Jesus. Um, that's why they looked to them, because they were Christ-like. Um, it's not because they... It's not because they were skilled. It's not because they had some leadership training. It's not because they had some great funding or strategies. Um, it's not even because they had some affirmation from a religious elite in their day. They may or may not even have been great speakers. It's because they were simply Christ-like. That was the minimum qualification. By the way, still to this very day, I believe the minimum qualification for any Christian to look at any leader, the minimum qualification for leadership over a Christian is Christ-likeness. That is it. It's not education. It's not leadership skills. It's not marketable ability. You look at them and you say, do they look like Jesus? And let's be honest, nobody fully 100% looks like Jesus, but Christ-likeness is a journey. It's a constant looking at your life and throwing off the things as you become more and more awakened to who Jesus is, the things that don't look like Jesus, being willing to repent and throw it out and start over in a more Christ-like way. They knew Jesus. Their lives reflected Christ-likeness. Their authority came not from leadership skills. It came from, from Christ, from their Christ-likeness. There was two questions that they asked their leaders. Are they filled with the Spirit of God? Are they led by that Spirit of God? And are they Christ-like? And so the subtle nod to Passover in, 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 and, and Exodus in this letter, in Luke's letter in chapter 12, um, it meant something. It's not there on accident. He's not wasting space. He's giving them something to look back on and be like, no, no, no. This is the same God and this is the same story. It meant that they have neither, that nobody else any longer, just like Egypt, there's a new people of God and no one has authority over them or the power to stop them. 
They can command you, they can bribe you, they can imprison you, they can threaten you, but your first authority is to Jesus, the one whom you have placed your faith in. And the message is to simply remain faithful to the one whom you belong, to whom you belong. And that one we're being faithful to is the full and perfect image of Jesus. That's why Paul proclaims, um, by the way, let me, here, I need to go a little farther here. Um, there's, there's a line in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In the early church, again, the qualifier for whether or not you should follow somebody was whether or not they are Christ-like. If someone has all the knowledge and all the authority but does not look like Christ, you, you, you throw off their authority. You, you throw it out. You ignore their writings. You, you throw out their sermons. You remove their admiration. You, you, it, all of it's misplaced. If you... If there's someone that you admire and you look up to because there's some great writer, some great theologian, look at their life, though. Don't make false idols out of your leaders. The goal is not even rightness, it's Christ-likeness. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody sort of knows it. I'm going to read it from the message because I think Eugene Peterson puts a lot, of, a lot of power. And he says, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love... I am nothing but a creaking and rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. And then he says, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. God is love. The perfect love of God, perfectly revealed in the perfect image of God. Not only the perfect image of God, the perfect image of humanity. That is why all that matters is Christ-likeness. That's what matters above anything else. And so we can argue all these different reasons about why you should read this book or follow this person or Make this person your leader. Or If there is no love, if there is no Christ-likeness, there is no Christian leadership. That is the center of it all. And it's not until the church begins to move away from the battle for rightness and power and moves towards simple, faithful Christ-likeness that is the moment when the church will really begin to understand who she is. Luke's message to us is that you've had a Passover too. You've had an Exodus event. You have been set free from all these people. Don't go back to them. Don't go, don't go back. We are just, the, honestly, we're a lot like Israel, constantly falling back into idolatry. And it leads to exile every time. I think right now we're probably entering into a solid time of exile for a while. And I think we should. I think it's important. Um, Because I don't think at this moment when the world looks at the church, they get an accurate depiction of what Jesus is like. Too many of our leaders have failed. Too many of our pastors, too many of our theologians, too many of our great spokespeople live lives that have nothing to do with Jesus. They don't look like Christ. They have given his name up for everything that the people in the temple were chasing after. 
And so when we read Luke chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, we need to be reminded that these are the things we have been set free from and we don't need to be going back to it. And so with that, why don't we go into a, uh, a time of communion? Uh, what was my elements? They're over here. So if you have your communion elements, go ahead and grab those if you would. And uh, there's two elements. There is the body of Christ represented by the bread broken. There is the blood of Christ represented by the wine, the blood which was poured out from seven places on the body of Christ. Um, this is the last thing that Jesus did before he was dragged away and unjustly tried and murdered. And this is the thing that he reminds us to do every time we come together because the body of Christ, again, the King, the Messiah, his kingdom is not established by power, by violence, by military might, or by the sword. It is established by the cross. That is why the body of Christ must constantly allow itself to be broken and poured out for the world. And so do this in remembrance of Christ. Body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we, um, as we venture out into our week. I pray that you go before us you would uh, light the way, point out the parts of our life that are not Christ-like, point out our leaders that are not Christ-like. Help us to uh, remember that we have been set free from these unnecessary laws, these unnecessary weights that religious leaders always want to lay upon us. You have called us to be like you. And there is no substitute for that. There is no offensive laws around you that we can obey. We are led by your spirit. Your spirit is the law that you have given us. It has moved from paper to flesh and been placed in our hearts. Allow us to follow that. Let us be your people. In your name, amen. We have a new collect prayer this week that was just sent to me today by our prayer team. Let's do it together. Oh God, our creator who never abandons us, remove our preconceived ideas and clear our sight so we can see and share in what you are doing. God, we confess we are anxious and fearful. Help us to elevate Jesus to his rightful place. Let us hear his voice above all others and see the world through his eyes. So we know you are moving and we follow where you lead. Let us each become individuals who are fulfilling the purpose of our creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love you all. Miss you all. See you again soon, no doubt.